When NASA was learning to communicate with its spacecraft, it realized that by dialing down the signal, it could reduce the noise and achieve greater clarity. Just like them, we're on a mission to gain greater clarity on emerging opportunities and threats facing complex, fast-forward brands and businesses. And our podcast, like the NASA engineers before us, seeks to dial down the noise and find the emerging signals worth following. What does all this have to do with marketing and business strategy, I hear you say? Well, there's a lot of brand, customer, financial, and cultural noise out there on any given day. But underneath it all, there are signals that indicate emerging opportunities and threats. But how do you know and how do you separate the signals from the noise? And when you do, how do you respond? Signal Strength is a podcast series that will introduce you to the emerging opportunities and threats that you need to think about and create a safe space to learn how to respond to them. We'll talk to leading thinkers, experts, and pioneers in their fields who are defining the best new playbooks and approaches to solving near-future problems and exploiting near-future opportunities. It's all brought to you by Selby Labs, a foresight and innovation practice of Selby Anderson, who are here to help you win the future. As Mike Skinner would say, lock down your aerials. So welcome to another edition of Signal Strength. I'm delighted to be in the studio with my colleague, Sophie Norris, who is Group Client Director at Selby Anderson. In fact, I'm going to hand over to Sophie to introduce our guest, who I'm really excited to get to know, um, Wendy Shand. Hi, everybody. I am Sophie Norris. I am your guest voice on Signal Strength today. And we've got a personally very exciting show for us today because I'm bringing two people who I know and like very much together. We've got Jerry Hopkinson, who's CEO of Selby Labs, who is joined by a former client and now friend of mine, Wendy Shammed from Impact Resilience. And the topic today is about resilience and foresight and how we can prepare for risk and how we move forward with our heads held high and our businesses soaring through uncertain times. I'm on board as a bit of a devil's advocate today, so you won't be hearing much from me. I am going to throw straight to Jerry to kickstart the show today. Hey, Wendy, lovely to have you with us. Welcome. We're really excited to talk to you today. So we're going to start with the obligatory background questions and want to just dive in and say, hey, so... How do you find yourself sitting here today? Where have you come from? What was your journey like in terms of getting to impact resilience, which is your business? And I know the Resilient Britain campaign, which you'll tell us more about. What are the things that led up to that? Oh, well, first of all, thank you very much to both of you for having me. It's lovely to be here. Oh, my journey, my goodness me, um, I started off life in marketing and PR um, when I left university, I was working for um, a quango that represents our elite athletes in this country, helping them to prepare for the Olympics and so on. Um, and then I, um, at that time, I met and married my soon-to-be husband, who was inconveniently training to be a fast jet pilot in the RAF. So there goes my big London marketing career. <laughs> Never going to happen, um, you know, in North Wales or north of Scotland or any of the other places that we might end up in. So I did my teacher training and I thought, 
brilliant. I'm going to be the ultimate RAF wife. I'm going to be, you know, hugely transportable, you know, very adaptable. Um, and I'll, I'll do this and follow him around with his job, um, which worked for a little while until we ended up in North Wales. Um, and in North Wales, unless you speak Welsh, you can't teach. So I had a period of being a stay-at-home mum. We had another child, so by that time we had two. And we had a holiday where our two, we had two children under the age of three and our two-year-old fell into an unenclosed swimming pool. Um, we were on holiday in France um, and he just tripped into the pool and began to sink. Now, we were very, very lucky. We were one of the lucky ones who got him out in time and um, have been able to move on. But there are plenty of other families who are not so lucky. And what that really prompted in me was a was a, a sort of a thought piece about well, why isn't the travel industry dealing with this very large group of people who are in a very specific place in their lives? They have a very clear set of criteria for their holidays, and that's to keep their children alive and give themselves the best chance of having a relaxing holiday. And so was it that the travel industry had already been round this boy and decided it was a really rubbish idea? Or was it that they just didn't know? Um, and I was too stubborn to take that first answer. So I began to investigate it. And what actually followed was a villa business that grew from being nine villas in a small part of France with me in you know the spare bedroom of our RAF married quarter. And it grew into being really quite a sizable business with holiday villas in France, Italy, Spain, Portugal, the Balearics and all those sort of key family destinations. And then by about 2016, we um, had got external investment into the business and I had begun to create a resort business. Um, that's probably the fuller conversations one for another day. But essentially, we had seven resorts across uh, across um, Europe that were specially designed um, for families with small children. We had branded it with a fabulous brand and it was a, it was a very experiential development, essentially. Um, and by 2019, as every other travel person will tell you, we were going utterly gangbusters big team, big revenue. Um, we were on the cusp of another round of investment and then the pandemic hit in, in 2020 and that um, just pushed us over in no small manner. Mm. Um, and so the fallout of that really is part of what brings us to where we are today. Thank you for sharing all that. That's really interesting. And before we get into talking in detail about impact resilience and the campaign, one of the things that occurred to me in listening to your story is it was kind of bookended by two crises. One, a very familial, personal, and I'm sure a very difficult time for you, albeit that gave you some insight into a market opportunity. I'm personally, and we at Labs are very interested in where insights come from. And often they come from unexpected places, but often they come out of the clear blue, don't they? And then I think COVID is many things, but it certainly was a global crisis. And that sort of sense that crisis is, is around us all the time in ways we can't predict, I think is really a nice setup for the conversation that I know we're going to have about, I think, the, the frontier, the new frontier for leaders and for business, which is in an accelerated era of change and uncertainty, this idea of resilience um, becomes very, very important. Yeah. So tell us about your take on resilience. So you're absolutely right that that was bookended and very insightful, actually, to notice that. There is also another event in our lives that really is highly contributory to where we are now, which is that whilst my husband was flying the, the Harrier the, um, out of the, the East Midlands, he 
had a day where he took off from the base. And as he took off, all the oil left the jet. And that means it's just like running a car, that if you've got no oil in your car, it will begin to run dry and burn itself out. And that's indeed what happened. And in actual fact, the plane exploded over a little village over Rutland. The plane exploded and he was just able to steer the plane away from the village and the school and into and, and the whole thing um, happened over a field and he ejected. Now, in all of his training, what became very clear his survival of that instance was because he was incredibly well practiced at what he did so forever if you think about what a fast jet pilot does is they're forever practicing drilling simulating for the worst case scenario and you hope it's never going to happen but you know it does happen and he was brilliantly prepared for that he's you know they're high performing individuals and so what's so interesting about that is that it leaves us really quite well prepared for this this era and impact resilience is definitely a result of the combination of all those events in our lives. Now, what we do as a business is we go and we help businesses to prepare for threat. And as you alluded to earlier, we are in an era that is increasingly uncertain, whichever term you'd like to use, maybe VUCA, volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous. There's a new one that the academics are knocking around in business school these days, which is Banny. Oh. So it's even scarier, which is brittle, anxious, non-linear, and incomprehensible. But we get the, we get the point. Is however however we want to label it, weird shit seems to be, you know, pretty normal these it days. Does. It's the new normal. It's really do- it really does. And Do you know Hunter S. Thompson, who's an American writer, no longer with us? kind of reinvented this new style of journalism. And one of his, he's very good at aphorisms like Oscar Wilde. And one of his aphorisms was, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro, which I always loved. <laughs> is that us? That probably is. I think, I think it is. I think I'm, I'll gladly say, yeah. Signal strength, so, weirdo yeah, noise. Yeah, yeah. But, but I think to the point, you know, you're sorry, I've interrupted you. We're talking about, yeah, you know, we're in this era of accelerated change. And you were talking about your 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 husband's near fatal accident, yes. so we don't want to be too lighthearted. Well, he is still. I've met him. Yes, he's still with he's us. Still alive. I'm, I'm, I know. I'm, I'm, <laughs> sure, I'm sure he is. I know he is. But so so, how did that inform you guys to be doing what you're doing now? What was the? I think what it made us realize was that we, as individuals, together with his trained thinking and trained mindset, were really in a place that understood what was needed for this era and in a really sort of uniquely differentiated place to bring something new to the market with particularly this emphasis on how the military understands dealing with crisis Mm. and dealing with uncertain times. So Wendy and I have spoken about this lots of times and about Rob's accident or near accident lots of times and I think you've said to me before and Rob has said that it was almost muscle memory that enabled him to go through those procedures at rapid pace with things you know unfolding in seconds in front of them and that the muscle memory doesn't come because your muscles remember anything it's training and training and training yourself and I think that sort of has led into where you've gone a bit with impact resilience I want to come at that for a moment because I think it's really interesting and I'm reading several books at the moment that are about really looking at strategies around change but there's one called The Four Workarounds by Paulo Savagette. It's essentially about how do you pivot and how do you deal with something changing in the world that you're operating in and do what we call back home workaround. You know, you figure, okay, there's another way to, to get around. I'll, I'll figure out another way to do that. And then the other book I'm reading, which is very, um, I won't go into 
in great detail is about insight. But there's this great story about a guy who was a firefighter in uh, Wyoming in the 40s. It's a terrible story, really. That uh, There was major forest fires, and they lost a lot of men on this mountain. But he obviously had done loads of training, you know, and he had all that muscle memory of training. But he's there on the mountain, and what happens is that the they're called blow-ups in fighting fires, that suddenly the wind carries a forest fire, and the wind pushes and accelerates it, and it's like the equivalent of a fire hurricane. And this was coming down the mountain. And... He decided in the spur of the moment to light a fire and to get the ash going and then to put a, a rag, he got his canteen out, filled, it with, filled the rag with water, put it over his mouth, dived into the ash, saved his life. No one had ever done that before. And he did it instinctively and it has now become a key strategy. And I'm, I'm asking that because I want to distinguish, I wonder if y- you agree, but I'd like to distinguish between lots and lots of preparation and the ability to act instinctively because of that, which might be in a novel way. So in other words, innovation also benefits mm-hmm. from preparation. I think you need both going on. I really do. I think, you know, the ability to use your insight and your intuition is such a strong human ability. So be, to, to be able to couple an ability, your ability to lead and know what's going on with intuition is really powerful. I mean, in Rob's situation, he was simultaneously pulling the ejection handle and restarting the, the plane at the same time, all within about you know a few seconds of him exploding, essentially. And so what was going on there? I mean, he doesn't really remember. He doesn't remember that happening. He only knows that happened because he's listened to the recordings. Now, that is an incredibly intense, and most of us would like to think not likely to happen in our businesses anytime soon. But the nature of a shock, which is what you know, resilience is all about, being able to withstand a shock mm-hmm. and then coming back from it. And ideally, the, the whole idea about risk management and planning and scenario rehearsing and looking at the future and all the rest of it is your ability to bounce back quickly, to minimise that length of time that you're out of action. So, for example, if you have a cyber attack and you're down, and your systems are down, what you want to do is make that as short as possible. Because the longer you're down, the less likely you are to recover. Um, So you want to minimise that period. Now, a cyber attack is quite a good example, that if you have done everything you can technically to protect yourself, and your team have a plan for when that happens, and that plan has been rehearsed and tested, then you are far more likely to bounce back to what is probably a new normal by that stage mm. than you were if you had done none of those things. So I think this is a really good place to just, just stop for a moment and think about this whole idea of responding to unknown situations, things we can't, we don't necessarily know they're going to come along, but chances are the world's going to throw a few curveballs. I was watching um, 13 Days last night, which is a great film about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that the character who played President Kennedy talked about is he said, look, the the guys in the military, the problem is they're fighting the last war. And what they're going to do is they're going to assume that whatever, say, we do, the other side will follow the rules of engagement and they'll see it as escalating toward war because that's the only language they know and that's what they think all behavior is, aggression. But what Kennedy realized he was trying to do was he was trying to communicate in a new language to Khrushchev with military signaling. So the semiotics of placement and decision-making of the American foreign policy, basically, to say, 
I don't want to go to war, but if you don't get your missiles out of my backyard, it's not going to go well. And it was the, the, the structure of that that enabled him to do it. And the reason I, I bring that up is I think take cyber security, right? You could prep for a, a cyber attack. Unless you look into the future, unless you're really aware of what's coming, you're preparing for the last cyber attack, not the next cyber attack. Your protocols might be great. You might know how to air gap your computers. You might know how to run all your antivirus software. But if you don't know, for example, the new cultural memes and behaviors of the next wave of cyber criminals, then you're not going to be cooking up the right you know risk plan i think so i think r2 this is where the reason i say this and this is where r2 worlds come together yeah absolutely it's a really good point so you've got and we talked before didn't we about um you said earlier it's never too late to start moving towards an insight we'll stick on cyber cyber is a human issue there's only so much that that the tech will protect you from so you've got to make sure that your team are as as prepared as you know that they can be for that event and you've also got to be looking to the future to see what is down the road so you can't become complacent i speak to people all the time you say oh it's fine we've got all our tech and we do all our pen testing and we do all of this and we do all of that and the other but it's like, well actually unless unless you are con continuing to see that as a live risk and looking to the future and constantly looking for insight to your point earlier about what is coming back around the corner that is to my mind, complacency. So you have to be doing as much as you know now as well as looking mm. for the future. And I think our position really is that traditional risk models are at risk of becoming outmoded and outdated. And so actually what we need, to, what we do with um, our, our crisis leadership training is we are teaching leaders how to lead through a crisis. It's very different to leading through peacetime. Mm. You know, during a crisis, things are very ambiguous or, or a threat or a shock, whatever what terminology you want to use. They are um, ambiguous, uncertain. I've just got to stop you. So Wendy's, Wendy's saying, uh, rowing back from the word crisis, because <laughs> I had this reaction. <laughs> I had this reaction before we went on air to to the word permacrisis, which which I think is is it, up there in the, one of the most depressing phrases of all time. And I don't like it, but I get what we're talking about here is legitimate crises where you got to call a spade a spade. It's a crisis, and um, absolutely right that you do. So don't don't worry. I just wanted to. <laughs> oh no, you don't. Allow you That's to say fine. that. That's fine. Thank you. And um, and so I think you've you've got to be you've got to have some some core skills as a leader to be able to lead through times that are distinctly. What was the phrase you used? Banny. Yeah, yeah. You know? uh, brittle, anxious, nonlinear, incomprehensible. Yeah, and yeah. those and a, and, a, and that can be. You know, they they very much can be that. You're not going to get all the data. You're going to have to. You know, leaders are, are quite often used to making decisions based on having quite a lot of data absolutely and i think also i mean one of the working definitions of the era we're in now is this idea of look there's always been change right but we used to be able to go oh change i see it it's that distant mountain out there fine but change is time compressed now and it's accelerating yeah. and i think that is a definition i guess of the conditions of a crisis right which is it's coming at you You've got to make a call very quickly on about 50 things. You don't have time to sit and wargame it and contemplate it. You, if you haven't prepped, you're kind of probably in trouble, right? 100%. I was talking to my father recently who um, was in banking in the 70s and 80s, yeah. and I said to him, so how did you do business? 
you know, when we're used to being battered by emails and, you know, WhatsApp and everything's binging and bonging all over the place. You know, I said, well, what was it like when you just waited for a letter to come through the door? And he said, no, he said, I don't know how you how you will manage. And that's, you know, that is the acceleration and the amount of. But equally, I don't know how they managed. We were talking about this. Actually, this is a bigger side. But we were talking about this. (laughs) (laughs) With Hamilton. Right. So we went to see Hamilton, the show. And. And you were thinking about war in those days, so ultimate in crisis. And Hamilton obviously was very much a wartime leader, not a peacetime leader. And um, you were just thinking, you know, battles went on for weeks and weeks. And, and, you know, because they relied on letters or people Mm. delivering things on horseback. Mm. So there might be days before a general got something and retaliated. So I I think war must have been pretty easy because you had massive breaks in between each battle while communications went. I'm sure that's not happened to American historians out there. But (laughs) but the the pace of change... It's the pace that I think is overwhelming at the moment, Jerry, and I think that's why I find what Labs does with horizon scanning so important because and interesting, also interesting because in a world where there is there is no respite between battles, and they don't even have, battles could be good things, by the way, they could be things when things are accelerated yeah. and change. You need to be able to have a weathered eye on what's coming up, otherwise you're drowning before yeah. you get there. I've mixed so many metaphors there. No, I no, but it's a, it's a very very good point, and <laughs> yeah. I think you know one of the things we talk about is. Of course, most leaders and managers and most people in business, we've all got dashboards, right? And we've been sold dashboards by loads of software companies. Computer geeks. Because, (laughs) right? Because they're so metrics. What are your metrics? And you've got all the, so it's like driving a car. You've got all all the dials. You look at all the dials and you think, yeah, great. I know exactly what's going on. No, you don't because you've just driven your car straight into a wall because you're not looking out. The wind, you're not looking out the, you know, the, the front of the windscreen. You've got to spend your time also looking out at the road ahead. And, yeah, like your husband did so adeptly. You're, okay, I can see that. I can see that's going off. I can see that. But he's also thinking five steps ahead. And he's thinking, okay, how long's my plane got? What's the trajectory of this, mm-hmm. this uh, craft? And what are my options for ejection? Okay, you know, that sort of what we call anticipatory thinking anticipating anticipatory leadership is 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 vital in a crisis but it's also vital in the modern world or in the era that we're in that and i see i see now why people talk about perma crisis but it's more about perma vigilance perma um resilience Mm -hmm. i would prefer Uh, yeah i think it's this this leadership is going to absolutely need to be one of building resilience and strength within your business, really doing your risk management, training your people, understanding what you're going to do if such and such event happens, making sure that you've got a really strong culture, making sure that your brand is protected, that you're building trust, all of those that really good stuff, because all of that builds for when the crisis happens. Yeah, yeah. So I was going to ask both of you how much... So if you're a leader of a business, both of these things, so the preparation... And the horizon scanning, are are they equally important? Should a leader be focused on the horizon, Joey, do you think? Or yeah. Wendy, would you battle to the death to say make sure they're training? I, I do both. Well, I like to think I do both. I'm, I'm forever looking for insight and at the same time saying we have to make time to prepare for this because a te- you know, if you, a team is not prepared for it, 
then for anything that comes up, then you really are you, you're 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 crossing your fingers and hoping against hope that that's that's your strategy is of is crossed fingers. I mean, if you just run the business, you're a manager, you're not a leader, and good on you. That's a really tough job. For me, leadership absolutely has to involve knowing where to go and how to get there. But it also has to recognize all the bumps on the way, all the obstacles in the way, all the places where you can stop, you know, and take a rest and have a drink. And in other words, the positive opportunities that are out in the world and the dangers. If you don't know where you want to be and you don't know the map of how to get there, you're failing as a leader and you will fail. And so for me, it's it's critical. You shouldn't do it alone. You should absolutely get help from the likes of us and the likes of Wendy and the likes of your team. But I do think this era of uncertainty also dials up the need to not just, and I'm moving away a little bit from, from preparing for crises now, and thinking about in a world of uncertainty, you have to spend some time speculating about what might come to pass, and testing, proactively testing that speculation, which could be very similar to the process that you engage in with, with you know, risk management. Mm-hmm. But where I'm, what I'm talking about, for example, might be to say, if you're in the food industry 10 years ago and you were doing what we're talking about, you probably would have started to spot plant-based you know, eating. 20 years ago, right, it was n- super niche, Right, nobody. I mean, vegans were who? What? What are? A what's, a, what's a vegan? What? Yeah, maybe in Totnes they've heard of it. Otherwise, no, not so much. Don't diss the Totnes. No, I love the Totnes. <laughs> I love. We were talking about Totnes. Live next to Totnes. No, I mean that's why Totnes is so wonderful because they knew. But you know, other than a few places, people didn't know, right? So now it's mainstream. But there was probably a moment when, if you were looking out, you'd have gone, "Okay, there's the green environmental movement." There's health and there's this vegetarian thing. I That's feeling like something we should at least track. And maybe we should test and learn with a product or with a little concept test or something. If you'd done that, you would have probably captured the market. Now, not everybody needs to do that. That's a very opportunistic focus. But take around the other way. You know, if you make meat pies for a living... Mm. Yeah, what are you going to do? Yeah, you kind of probably would have been caught napping. And I think there's another angle to this as well, which is that in eras of chaos, mm. amazing, amazing opportunities result. Yes. You know, whilst th- in terms of leadership, and all of this makes leadership sound like a really hard job, which it is, it's about making sure your businesses are strong yeah. and resilient, whilst at the same time looking for the opportunities that will inevitably be there. Yeah, as friction long as causes sparks, exactly. right? And from yeah. sparks, great things happen. And and there's that lovely quote, well, I don't know who, who said it, but never let a good crisis go to waste. Yeah, exactly. And it's, fa- it's fantastic. It's true. And you think about the, 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 the dividend. You talk about you know this being analogous with, with it being in battle, which it probably is, but then the peace dividend of actually some of the things that you do follow through and become the, the benefit. Well, of, and also wars the, accelerate change. They always have, right? Or yeah. Not, so. yeah. So, you know, COVID, um, Zoom said thank you very much. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, yeah, that, danced off into the horizon. <laughs> that'll do. That'll do nicely. Yeah. So there's always, yeah, there's always an upside. I, I, I can I ask you another thing about yeah. before you move on, Jane? Yeah, yeah, can yeah. I ask you another thing about horizon scanning? Um, and you've touched on it, you both of you earlier yeah. on. But I, I'm just wondering how you, as a leader, might manage this. But when you horizon scan, you're not only going to come up with one scenario that might be pertinent to your business yeah. or your brand. Yeah. The likely is there's going to be. Yeah. four multiples of four whatever it might be so how 
How do you absorb and assimilate that, Jerry? Do you think into your business strategy planning and? For sure, it's a really good question. So, look, I think there are. I mean, Jim Gator has got a kind of classic scenario model, which is used by everybody since he invented it, which is basically four likely scenarios for a market and for a business within a marketplace. Continuation, growth, the one that everybody loves and, and tells himself is got to be the case. But that's, that's it is definitely possible. The, other, the second is decline and collapse. You know, actually pretty scary. Don't like to think about it, but always worth thinking about. The third is essentially discipline, which is constriction. So it gets to be a bit more focused, maybe take some of the players out of the game. And the fourth, which is the one that we've been obsessed by for the last 10 to 15 years and which California keeps telling us is the only game in town, not sure it's true, is transformation, which is disruption. You know, everything's disrupting. Not true. Not everything is disrupting, uh, but some things are. You know, dry cleaning hasn't disrupted that much uh, for a while, unless I missed something. But if only we're using it less. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, the chemicals, we don't like them. And we don't like the chemicals. Yeah, but it's yeah, but no one's inventing a new way to do dry cleaning. Maybe they are. I'm gonna. We'll probably get loads of people calling, <laughs> going, "Oh, you idiot!" Yes, <laughs> they are. Great. Call us, the, dry cleaners. The, 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 the point is, you know. So, so there. Are, so, so first of all, there's those. But we always start with something actually much more basic, which is, what is the kind of almost sacred cow belief in your sector or your company. And there's always one or two, right? And they are actually, sometimes they can't see them, you know, because they're so close to them, but you, you find it, right? And then from that, you say, well, what if that weren't true? Budget airlines and price. What if price suddenly became slightly less important or maybe not so much, not important so much at all? What would happen to EasyJet and Ryanair? They'd go out of business, but what might happen to the way they transform? Now, Unlikely, because there's probably always people who want to travel for cheap. But if you ask yourself the question, what happens is you get outside your frame of reference and then you start to think, oh, okay, there's a possible future here. Then you say, is there an anchor for that? You say, oh, well, actually, yes, there is an anchor for that, which is we want more meaningful travel. So actually, the idea of budget is going to move from £100 to £1,000. And in the future, budget travel is £1,000 and luxury travel is £10,000 because constriction we're not going to be allowed to travel. That's all possible. So we start with that, then we get into our four scenarios. And then basically what we do is we start to do the risk management, which is the fun stuff, right? You go, how likely is it based on, you go out and get lots of information, you get everybody in the team working on this, you get data. And one of the things I think it's really interesting is most answers to complex problems live in the liminal space between facts and opinions. And we've just come up with fancy ways to say opinions. Info's neutral. Will that get you 100% of the way there? Never. Will hopes and dreams and even fears and opinions get you 100% of the way? Never. But it's the joyous cocktail of those two that is basically where you got to go. That's the job is to navigate that's really, that. That's really interesting, isn't it? Because there are certainly a, a large segment of personality types who, will, who don't like to make decisions without enough data. Yeah. And then there's the other side of the spectrum who just trade on intuition and yeah. insights. So you've got to somehow find some joy in the middle. You do. And there used to be a working definition of the sort of archetypes of political figureheads, you know, that they were either engineers or magicians. And magicians were able to, well, like magicians, mesmerise us. And they're usually great at oratory. They looked good. Churchill. Yeah, Ish. Churchill for sure, Thatcher, Clinton, Blair, take your pick, Chirac in France, and people who, you know, Trudeau in Canada, people who could just charm the 
birds from the trees. Mm-hmm. Good thinkers, but, you know, there was, and then the engineers who were the methodical, you know, Sunak probably right now, just, you know. Carter. did Carter did the job very much methodical and the concrete types. And it's probably true of leaders. There's probably more. I mean, Sophie and I talk a lot about leadership and, and have a few like sort of you know classic archetypes of, of the leader. But I want to talk to you about, you talked about, you know, in a crisis, leading in a crisis is different. So talk to us about what are the what are the key things we're going to give people. This is the free advice portion oh, yes. of the podcast. Free free sample. Dear Wendy. Dear, Dear Wendy. Dear Wendy. Free sample. I am a leader. Why oh why? So, so get me out of here. What are the things? So let's imagine I'm I'm listening. Someone's tuning into our podcast and they go, like, okay, we've got this leading expert mm-hmm. on how to lead in a crisis. What are the top tips? What are some of the things I should think about? I think you've got to gather as many of the facts as you have to hand and be okay with not having as many facts. And you need to have a crisis team around you, an identified crisis team around you who have designated roles, comms person, your customer service person. So you've got the insight coming from around the business. You need to take that insight and be prepared to make some decisions, even not knowing all the facts. So this is what it's, yeah, so there's a crisis leader, but I think I'm oh, sorry, and just I'm I'd love so you call it ambidextrous. Yes, labs calls it anticipatory. I think they're similar things, but are there traits of a anticipatory or ambidextrous leader that that stand out? I think it's this ability to look to the future whilst also recognising the harsh realities of today. There's a a guy called Admiral Stockdale, um, and the result was the Stockdale paradox. Admiral Stockdale was the highest ranking US military guy in Vietnam during the war. Mm, mm. Have you come across him, Mm -hmm, Jerry? mm -hmm. Um, He was asked, he, he survived the Vietnam War, was in prison camp for many, many years. And he was asked, how did he manage to survive whilst others didn't? And he said, well, the pessimists, they were pretty pessimistic. And so they didn't last very long because mm. their pessimism wiped them out. They gave, they gave up. The optimists went, well, we'll be here. We'll be out by Easter. And Easter came and went. And yeah. then we'll be out by Christmas. And Christmas came and went. And eventually their optimism faded and they too died. He says his skill was to be able to face the brutal facts of reality. Yes, and to be able to look at the harsh reality of where you are right now, whilst also remaining optimistic about the future and being able to take your team on that journey Mm. with you. Mm. The minute your team lose trust in you and they get a sense that you don't believe there is a future, it's it's over. It's a lot of pressure on an individual. Incredible pressure on an individual. And that's, that's really about, well, how do you lead through those moments when you're actually pretty on your own? You know, yep. who's going to help you? You've got to learn to learn to breathe Particularly, through that. Particularly, Jerry, if you're looking at something that hasn't yet come to be. Yeah. So you're also, so the trust then is yeah. dialed even up, right? Well, because uh, you're saying one day there might be yeah. plant-based aisles and M&S and the yeah, whole world's yeah, yeah. looking at it like, you're a lunatic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, no. um, whether you're preparing, I think whether you're Sorry prepar- to that bad analogy no, after the awful no, Stockdale <laughs> paradox uh, thing. Uh, yeah. I think whether you're preparing for uh, managing a threat or you're preparing to embrace an opportunity. The belief in the leader, I suppose, as you say, a leader who is pragmatic, who can help everyone adjust to the prevailing wind and the behavior and the weather and what's going on, but not lose sight of the course. In other words, navigate. And this idea of navigation, I find really interesting in leadership as maybe an undervalued skill. We put a lot of emphasis in the moment on vision, you know, what's your vision? And quite rightly, we put a lot of emphasis on communication, a lot of emphasis on people skills, all super important. 
But to your point, if you walk out in a gale force, you know, get knocked over and everyone gets wiped off the, you know, the street, like you can have all the vision and personable and calm skills you like, you're screwed. So competence is making a comeback and that in the context of an uncertain world, I really like this idea of being a navigator. Mm. And I just wonder what you thought about that. I mean, a navigator has implications of having a map, don't they? It does have implications <laughs> of having, well, you might have which, some which bits. Which you on, must love. I mean, <laughs> you, you really might valuable. have some yeah. bits on the map that says, don't know. Yes, here there be beasts. Exactly. Here, yes. be, here, be, here be monsters. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I like the idea of a navigator. I mean, again, that's somebody who's got the, the confidence to say, follow me, I know which way we're, we're going. Yeah. I think that's a really lovely lovely analogy. It does have to be somebody who has that chutzpah, I suppose, or, mm. or belief that mm. says, I, I, I know this course. Yeah. And trust me. And, it's okay. and actually, it, it might not be exactly the right direction but let's go down this way until we get enough insight or it's a bit like being at the helm of a tiller yeah. you know you just you you will have to just change a little course bit. correct course correct exactly. yeah you totally will and i think that's where i was coming from really that you know the, the, the to have it you've got an idea where you want to get to but um, i mean i i sort of talk about um the act of act of creation creativity like uh, more like a river than a straight line is sort of 100%. liquid li- <laughs> liquid thinking that, yes. you know, you've got an idea, right? I want to build a round building and you kind of go, God, okay, that looks a bit harder <laughs> to do than I thought. You kind of think it through and you kind of, you know, you're going to hit some obstacles along the way. But that sort of flexibility that we talked about, the ability to navigate around the bends, around the obstacles, you get there. But you never lose sight of the fact that you want to do that thing. Charles and Ray Eames, who I admire, who were designers, you probably know them. Yes. And they always said that they welcomed constraints. For every every brief has a constraint, but they never compromised. I thought it was a really nice mm-hmm. distinction. You know, a sonnet has certain constraints, but, you know, you can it still... It doesn't constrict creativity. It doesn't constrict the best, yeah. So, you know, I'm really interested listening to everything that you're saying because there's some really interesting, and I don't know if you're uh, aware of them, but the the words that are coming up again and again, and I'm not saying we don't need vision and we don't need creativity, but mm. are words like pragmatism mm-hmm. and constancy mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. bamboo, which is flexible, but flexible. yet ultra, flexible. Uh, ultra solid, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. So what yeah. I'm sort of hearing in a time of rapid change, there is a need for this kind of, solid foundation at the heart of it that that navigates you through there's a robustness and a solid solidity to the leadership that you need and my next question to be and it's probably too soon is does that get reflected in the brands that we're interested in during times of crisis as well what's what does a resilient brand look like well i just wanted to pause for a moment because i think you're really into some interesting stuff i don't know if you agree wendy and trying to figure out what are the attributes or qualities of leadership in turbulent Mm -hmm. times and i love the idea of strong and i love the idea of flexible i love the idea of light lightness and agility, which you talked about. And those things feel like they fit the bill for the times that we're in. But moving it into sort of talking about brands, one of the things we talk to our clients a lot about is the importance of being outside in and understanding what is the world doing, but what do people want from a brand? And the challenge is always that people, we find it sometimes hard to say what we want um, if you come and ask us. you know, As if you, consumers. As consumers, yeah. as human beings. You say, hey, Wendy, what do you want from an ice cream? And you're like, I don't, I don't know. 
And they usually give you a salt caramel, right? <laughs> well, Sorry, yeah. I, 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 I hear you. And they give you, you say, "I don't want, I don't want milk for a starter." Yeah, um, but they, you know, Wendy, so right, right, right. So, true. but, but I mean, the the you know the way in which we go about getting that information might be flawed. But the focus on looking outward rather than inward is something we we say a lot to our clients. And it's not that the market's always right, but it's that the market always has to be served. And so you have to spend your time thinking about it. And I don't know if this plays into the conversation, but I, we haven't talked a lot about up till now the role of brand and the role of the marketing team in this stuff. And of course, for, you know, absolutely critical for, you know, understanding what's coming next. And, you know, often you get briefs where the, it's come from the marketing team and they say, hey, we want to know about five years out or seven years out or 10 years out, what is our sector going to look like and what are the trends that are going to inform that because we've got to build out the next wave of products and services and if they're in the automotive sector or hospitality that's definitely that cycle but even in fmcg you know it takes quite a long time to get a product tested and you know built out so there's that but i was interested in your world around crises Can we talk a bit about the role for the brand and the marketing team yeah, I mean, there's so much in what you've just said. I think brand and reputation are really, really critical considerations, both in the preparation for a crisis and in the crisis itself. I speak to CMOs in particular, who are ultimately our brand uh, guardians. They are absolutely key, I believe, from a risk perspective. And I don't see them being involved in the risk discussion they may well be or there may be a PR person on the crisis team. But actually, I think the risk that marketing, head of marketing, whoever that person is, needs to be in the risk conversation from the very, very beginning. So who is the holder of the risk within a business? It might be the CEO. It might be the head of risk. Whoever it is needs to be bringing the marketing people in. Because those. You know, if you think about what happens, brand it's fairly intangible. The value of the brand is fairly intangible. It, it, it comes under the term of goodwill, doesn't it? Mm. But actually, if a brand really gets damaged and its reputation gets damaged, then where you begin to see it play out is in things like the cost of acquisition, the conversion rate, your recruitment, the cost of running your customer services team because you're dealing with a you know, a whole mm. shed load of... Mm. of Longer, more complex calls. Massively. Yeah. And we saw it in travel during the pandemic. You know, just running the customer service team was, was an incredibly expensive exercise. So I think it's really, really key that marketing and brand people are involved in this conversation about risk right mm. from the very, very beginning. And Jerry, if you say, if you yeah. say that brands need to be outside in, yeah. then that comes from a marketing team in many really ways, does. doesn't it? That Definitely. really does. Because whilst I, I, I'm a PR person through and through, um, but that is, in this in a crisis situation, that's often inside out because you're dealing with the here and now mm -hmm. and how you get what's happened within an organisation out. Marketing, I agree with it, so I'm agreeing, needs, needs to be there to ensure that balance and thinking. Yeah. Absolutely, and we all know, you know, in, in, a, in a crisis, you usually get around a table, you know, the leadership team, you'll get the legal team, some compliance. They're normally first in, yeah, yes. Right, yes. and you'll get you'll yes. get the, the, the spin doctors and you'll get, maybe if you're an enlightened company, you'll have the brand people there as well. And there's usually at some point a tussle between, oh, well, we ought to say this because it's good, you know, reputationally and it's the right thing to do and good for a brand. But the lawyers say, oh, if we do, then we're admitting liability and we're going to yeah. be in big 
trouble. Mm-hmm. So there's this ethical tug of war. So I think it's a really interesting case study there in in the former Thomas Cook. There were two children very, very sadly um, died in a carbon monoxide poisoning incident in Corfu. And that rumbled on and on and on and on for many, many years. And you probably remember it. Sophie. I do. And the lawyers won that battle. They were saying, don't admit liability. And it, it did a terrible job for the brand yeah. until until actually a friend of ours who's a PR crisis manager at the time said, look, you've just got to say sorry. Yeah. You've got to say sorry. Yeah. Um, and, and when that message started to come out, you know, it, it was better. But, you know, a, a brand really loses a lot if it loses its trust. I mean, we're watching it Absolutely. now play out. And who knows when this is going to go out. But at the moment, we're in the middle of the BBC presenter scandal. 100%. I mean, yeah. who, you know, which presenter is not being thrown under the bus in, yeah. in, the, in the pursuit yeah. of truth and honesty? And the BBC choosing not to say something and let's forget about the legality of it, is definitely, is damaging the brand, or certainly the brand of their presenters at the moment is very interesting. Yes, I think what we're saying is that how a brand behaves in a crisis is as important as the the kind of commercial commercial decisions it makes because we're watching, we're seeing it. And in a way, that's what reputation is, isn't it? It's watching someone navigate difficulty and, you know, do it with integrity and humanity. And then you're kind of like, yeah... That's, it's you that's at your great. best and you at your worst in many ways. And it's the yeah. constancy between those things. Back to the my nice, solid yes. words that I'm very much enjoying in this and podcast. And I think it's, uh, the, the, other, yeah. the other thing that's really important is for brands to realise that essentially they have at least three audiences. They have their buying customers, they yeah. have their own teams, yeah. and then they have their suppliers. True. And again, in, in, yeah. in the Thomas Cook example, I mean, that was a massive, massive hit on those hoteliers and suppliers who had a very good case for not coming back to work for, work with them when it to came move back. move to another tour operator yeah, or and, and move another on. model. Yes. Yeah. So I think it's really important. And I think that the human, sort of that your team is really important. And I think it's becoming more and more important as, you know, in terms that we've talked a lot about how you, important your team are and how you're to deal with them in a human way with trust and respect. And, Absolutely. You know, addressing their needs we march our customers into our businesses on a red carpet and we get our mm. you know our our team to come in through the cat flap mm. <laughs> you know what i mean mm. yeah, we need we good. need to change yeah. we need to change the way we we manage our team which is why culture is so important when you've got a very strong culture you're very much better prepared for the risks that come down the line i think it's absolutely critical that these marketing people are front and central to this conversation about risk well listen i think that feels like a really natural place for us to start to just summarize and make sense of a really interesting conversation about resilience, about crisis, and for me, about the the very close relationship between preparation for um, known or potential risks that we can see and what we call the horizon scanning and the preparedness and, I guess, vigilance for imagined futures that we need to prepare for, that businesses need to prepare for. And on that word vigilance, there was a study done by a business school a few years back, and they looked at whether, first of all, whether it was very large companies, I won't name and shame them, but very enormous companies within Europe. And did they have essentially a kind of foresight and looking out process or not? Did indeed they have strategies? How well did they deal with, you know, change? And where were they on a scale? And they had kind of four groups. So they had vigilant, which were, you know, the golden children who absolutely did look out in the future, did prepare for risk 
and were constantly doing it. You had the neurotic, which I love as a phrase, were those who, they didn't prepare, but they were really quick at adapting and responding, but they just came across as a bit, you know, twitchy. They must be very tired. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes. um, the vulnerable were, you know, they, they had strategies, but they were they were the wrong strategies, sadly. And then they had the kind of in danger who basically didn't have any strategies and were sitting ducks. And what they demonstrated was that those who faced into risk, thought about risk, prepared and understood what was coming and opportunity, because I'm going to fly the flag for that, outperformed the other brands like considerably. So if you want a business case to take away from this podcast, it's doing the work we're talking about here will not only make you stronger should and when inevitably things happen, but it will allow your business to outperform the competition. If you had to sort of give us one thing to think about to take away from this this podcast, what would you want people to think about? I think it's an urgent realisation that we are in a different era from the pre-pandemic era. And a dis- we need to lead differently and understand that that leadership will have different characteristics to the leadership we perhaps had in the peaceful times prior to the pandemic. I think then it's about making sure that you've got a solid base, you've, underst- you've got some solid risk management going on in place. You know what you would do if a threat arrived or the obvious threats arrived. And then I think there is no stronger case now for um, scenario rehearsals, so getting out there and practising and putting your team through sitting down and role-playing what would happen if a cyber attack happened. What would you do if your factory burnt down? What are you going to do? So prepare for the obvious things and practice. You know, there are some very big questions that trip you up in a crisis scenario that you don't think about when you're just doing your day-to-day work. The other thing that I think, and Wendy and I have talked about this a lot, is that it sometimes feels, particularly when you're looking, listening to podcasts like this or reading articles about resilience and crisis, that it's the preserve of big business who can afford consultants. And, and by the way, we love big business, so I'm not dissing that. But actually, crisis, as and Wendy's business was not a huge business, so crisis is, can happen to anybody and anybody can practice and prepare the things that we've talked about Absolutely. today, wherever they are in the UK and whatever the size of their business. And prepare Preparing for what might happen and looking to the future is something all businesses can and should be doing and will make for a stronger UK PLC, which is what the Hashtag Resilient Britain campaign is all about. Yes, and to that point, you know, 95% of businesses in this country are SMEs and they are largely unprotected. They're doing very little by way of risk. And they employ the vast number of people in this world. And Sophie and I have been speaking to the um, Centre for Social Justice who are concerned about our disadvantage. If we don't look after our businesses, it's the disadvantaged in our society that will get the biggest hit. So that these are principles we're saying that anybody can... Yeah, anybody can do it. And it's, it's really necessary. I mean, yeah. look, I think I, I love that. And I love the point about, um, you know, resilience and facing into some of your fears is yes. kind of what we're talking about exactly. so putting them on the table and going well what if this happened what if that happened that is enriching it's empowering and it reduces risk it doesn't increase it so just like when we were children you know when we look under the bed we realize there is no bogeyman but i think you're absolutely right people don't want to look under the bed no they they, they would rather they'd rather put their Fingers over their ears and go, la, 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 it's not going to happen to me. Which I think is that's going to be the topic for our next podcast, which is, um, you know, the ostrich. The ostrich. Why do we, how do we deal with the ostrich? But anyway, that's fantastic. Wendy, thank you so much. Been a real pleasure to talk to you. Where, if people want to find out more, where can they go? Uh, Well, I'm on LinkedIn. So Wendy Shand um, on LinkedIn or um, our website. 
Very good. In patresilience.com. We'll, we'll make sure with our, our episode notes that we include all of that. And yeah, thank you so much. Oh, it's been such a and pleasure. Fantastic. Thank, thank you. Sophie. I knew this conversation would go well, so I'm very <laughs> glad I put the two of you hey, together. Hey, brilliant. Go, Sophie. Oh, yay. <laughs>